Good morning. Uh, my name is Grant. I'm one of the pastors here at Restored. And I hope you're having a really good morning so far. Uh, if you are looking around for a seat, we've got some around the room, some in the front here. I'm going to take a moment to pray and then we'll get into our message. But Jesus, we worship you this morning. We ask you to meet with us this morning and speak to us. We pray you would teach us and encourage us. And Lord, as we're in this series, I ask you that we would see you and come to know you more and enjoy you more. And that actually our hearts would be filled with fresh awe and worship and love for you. Amen. Well, uh, last week, Andy kicked off our new series, introducing Jesus to us in a fresh way from Mark's gospel. Today, we're into part two of a series called A Day in the Life. And I know different people like different media and content, but I love like the different kind of videos and movies and shows which are day in the life oriented. Anyone else? Oh, cool. Muted excitement. I'm going to build the excitement that goes on over time. But I've loved like some webisodes of different skateboarders that I like, just seeing a day in their life or just finding a little bit of behind the scenes about them or some celebrities, or famous people, or interesting people, just finding out a little bit more about who they are, and what they're like, and what their lives are like. So this week, I went onto YouTube, and I put in A Day in the Life, just to see what would come up, and the first thing was the Beatles song, A Day in the Life, which has also been covered by Beck, so those things came up first, and then I found a lot of the interesting content that people create for the internet. A Day in the Life of a Japanese Butcher Shop Owner, number one. That was the first of this type of video on YouTube. Uh, we'll see if your algorithm is the same. Maybe I'm into different stuff to you. Secondly, a day in the life of a footballer in Germany, a single girl in LA, a senior in high school, a physics major, or an investment banker. And then the list just went on. Just really diverse and interesting range of kind of videos that people are making about their lives. And I think it would be true. Like it would be really interesting for us to know what a day in the life of you would look like too. And I mean, I think that's why we like biographies and autobiographies. I think that's why the Oppenheimer film was such a big hit last year. I think that's why everyone's interested in Taylor and Travis, because we want to know more about people's lives. That's why we like spending time with friends and sharing a meal together and getting to know people more deeply, because we like to know more about people. And in this series, that's what we're really wanting to do. We're wanting to spend the next five weeks after today learning more about Jesus, looking at Jesus, getting to know what he is like, experiencing a day in the life of him. And in Mark chapter 1, the chapter that we're in at the moment, we see a few of the big moments in Jesus' life. We get these snapshots of significant key life moments for Jesus, and then we get some very ordinary, everyday, behind-the-scenes Jesus stuff, what he does, his healing, his teaching, his time with people, his traveling, uh, his resurrections, that kind of thing. We see what Jesus got up to in his normal life, and that's what we're going to experience. I just want to say it's an amazing chapter. I'd encourage you to read it through, and if you're here and you're exploring Jesus, or you are looking into church and the message of Christianity in 2024, I think this could be an incredible introduction to Jesus for you. And if you've been in church for years, I think Mark 1 and what it's got to tell us is an amazing and helpful reminder to us to help us not just think, yeah, okay, yeah, Jesus, I know Jesus, but to see him, to look at him, be reminded of him, and hopefully be freshly encouraged about who he is. So today we're going to be looking at one of those key moments, those snapshots in Jesus's life. We're going to be looking at his baptism in Mark 1 verse 9. But I just wanted to say this for the parents in the room. Last week, our kids ministry guys went through this. 
So last week they looked at Jesus' baptism, and um, they are basically going to be tracking with us for the whole of uh, January and carrying on, looking at the life of Jesus. So as we here uh, in big church or whatever, all the adults are learning about Jesus through Mark 1, our kids are learning about Jesus in a very similar way. So I hope that enables you guys to have some great conversations with your kids and just talk about what you're reading and what you're learning about and how Jesus might be speaking to you too. But if you've got a Bible, can you turn to Mark 1 verse 9? And we're going to read, well, we're not going to read this together, but I will read it and you can follow along. Mark 1 verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So Mark's gospel moves really quickly. Something you would notice if you read through the whole thing is you'll get immediately and straight away and the next day and it just goes quick, quick, quick. So this huge moment in Jesus' life, his baptism, this once in a lifetime moment is three verses and 53 words in the original Greek. Mark's moving really quickly. So we actually need to slow down a little bit and scratch below the surface just to see all of what's going on in this passage because there's a lot going on here. This uh, really short passage reveals a lot to us about Jesus. It reveals a lot to us about the purpose of God from the beginning. We get a snapshot of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit here, which is pretty rare in Scripture. Uh, We've got a moment where the audible voice of God speaks to a huge crowd of people. It's a pretty rare occurrence. And then we've also got the fulfillment of prophecy and a whole bunch of Old Testament Scriptures either being quoted or alluded to. So these three verses, these 53 words in the original Greek, are absolutely packed, telling us more about Jesus and also telling us more about baptism and telling us more about how the gospel is good news for us. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Jesus, baptism, and us. Let's start with part one, looking at baptism. Before we talk about Jesus' baptism specifically, let's actually look a little bit more about what baptism is and understand that for ourselves. So Mark Deva, um, a Baptist pastor in defining baptism, says this, The Bible says that baptism is what you and I do when we believe in Jesus Christ. It's a picture of the new life we have in Him. So let's think about that for a second and just think, what is baptism? Firstly, baptism is something that Christians do. I know this is simple. I trust you to follow along with that. That's a pretty basic first one. But baptism is something that Christians do. So if you are a Christian in this room today and you haven't been baptized, I'd encourage you to get baptized as a following Jesus, an act of obedience. Uh, the Great Commission, one of the most famous uh, words of Jesus from Matthew 28, right at the end of his ministry, before he ascends to heaven, after the cross and all of that, he says this, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth, which is just wild. Like we don't have time today to get into that. But Jesus is saying, I have all authority over everything that exists in the whole universe. Really big thing to get into that we don't have time for today. But because of Jesus' authority, because he is king, because of who he is, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Another amazing encouragement at the end of this. I'm, I'm with you always. Tomorrow as you go to work, next weekend, in your highs and lows of life, Jesus is with you to the end of the age. 
But here we see like core to what it means to be the church and core to what it means to be a Christian or a disciple is that we're helping other people to follow Jesus. We're, we're teaching them his words and his ways. And we are calling people to be baptized, to be fully immersed into the reality of Father, Son, Holy Spirit as a response to who he is. So firstly, baptism is something Christians do. Secondly, baptism follows belief. And in the scriptures, we see this pattern of people encountering Jesus or encountering the gospel and responding to it. And the way that we see people respond is repenting and then confessing their sins and trusting in Jesus. It's a response to him. Baptism is done once, and it's only done after this profession of faith, this commitment to follow Jesus. So we don't repeat baptism again and again and again. If you might feel far from God, or you might sin, or you might drift really far away from Him, or, or not be in church in years, baptism is a once-off thing which symbolizes a really significant moment. Here at Restored, we practi practice something called credo baptism, which is a fancy term that really means believer's baptism, meaning that we baptize people who are old enough and understanding enough to really understand what it means to be a Christian. Now, lots of people get baptized or christened as babies, like I did. But when we get baptized in that way, that's not a, a response of our faith. That's a response, or at least a hopeful response, of our parents and their faith, their desire for us to grow up in the faith and to follow Jesus for the rest of their lives. But we here see that as a decision we make in response to Jesus, rather than a decision that someone else makes for us. So baptism follows belief. Thirdly, baptism, baptism is a picture. It's this outward public demonstration of an internal reality, something that has already happened inside of us. When a Christian is immersed in water, this picture of going down under the water is a picture of dying to our old life and dying to our sins in the same way as Jesus went into the grave. And when we're lifted out of the water, it's a picture of Jesus' resurrection, that he rose from the dead, conquering Satan, sin, and death. And it's a picture of us rising to a new life and a new way. For some of you in this room, maybe that's a really powerful thing. Beautiful. Maybe for some of you that's not the case. But one of the things that baptism reveals to us is in the gospel, there is a cleansing that comes. As we are forgiven, we are washed clean and made new and start a new life. And maybe this is true for you. Maybe you've been in rooms where this happens. But I've heard people tell their story of beginning to follow Jesus and feeling cleansed from things they had done or things that had been done to them, just washed and made new, starting a new life and how beautiful that thing is. And that is the truth of the gospel, that in Christ we are washed clean and have a new life. In Isaiah 1 verse 18, uh, the prophet Isaiah puts it this way, though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. We can be made pure and spotless like that snow. Or like the old hymn goes, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Some of you are singing, I was tempted to sing that today, but it would be not good for anyone. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nearly... I'm on the edge. I'm not going to do it. Um, that is true for everyone in this room today. Or it can be true for you if you respond to Jesus. You can be washed clean, made spotless, like that white pure snow. No matter what your past was, no matter what you did, no matter what you experienced, no matter what defined you or what was said of you, you can be made new like that. 
And baptism gives us this picture of this new spiritual reality that we are new and we are washed clean. Fourthly, baptism is by immersion. So the Greek word for baptism literally means to plunge, soak, or dip. And the English translators got really creative here, and they decided that they would transliterate that Greek word baptizo and make a new word baptism. So they got creative with that, but that wasn't a religious word or a spiritual word back in the day. In fact, that word baptizo could be used of someone who seriously drowned or a ship that sank out at the ocean. It got baptized, it baptizoed. Or even, I think this is amazing, we've got a recipe for pickles recorded by a Greek physician named Nicander. And he says this, literally, bapto, as in dip quickly, the cucumber in water, and then baptizo, as in baptize it, immerse it, dip it, dunk it, hold it down in the vinegar until it becomes a pickle. So I don't know what the Spirit's doing in the room now. Some of you maybe are feeling, I need to respond to God with baptism. Some of you are saying, I think I'm going to get into pickling. It sounds amazing. I'm here for that. But that's what baptism is. Fifthly, not saved by baptism. And this is a really important thing for us to grasp because we could come from different backgrounds and different experiences of this. But many people think that baptism is a necessary condition for salvation. But Jesus told the thief on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise or in glory. He didn't have time to be baptized before his death. Baptism is a sign of our salvation. It's not a condition of our salvation. The baptism. But really similar to a wedding ring for someone who is married, you know. Baptism is like that ring because wearing a ring doesn't make you married, but it demonstrates that you're married to Jesus. And similarly, baptism is a joyful public declaration and celebration. Like we said, this is a one-time event. Jesus is doing this once. This is a big moment in his life. When you are baptized, this is a public celebration of the fact that you have chosen to follow Jesus. You've decided that you are going to follow him, that he is your savior, that what he says is true. You've repented and trusted in him and, and entered into a new life. So we celebrate that as a community. We celebrate that someone has decided to follow Jesus. We celebrate the fact that God has washed them clean. We celebrate the fact that they are new. And the Bible says that when one sinner repents of their sins, all the angels of heaven celebrate that. More than over 99 righteous people who don't need to celebrate. So as we celebrate around a pool or a bit of water as someone is baptized, we know that heaven celebrates along with it. So that's part one, baptism. Part two, we're looking at Jesus. This is Jesus' baptism. Now, as I shared that about what baptism is, what it symbolizes, what it means, you might be thinking to yourself, well, why did Jesus need to get baptized? Which is a good question. In Matthew chapter 3, when he talks about baptism, he talks about it being a baptism for repentance. And he talks about this group of people that are by the Jordan River that are confessing their sins and being baptized or washed clean as a sign of repentance. So why would Jesus need to do that? Jesus never sinned. He was pure and perfect in every way. He had nothing to repent of. He had no sins to confess. So why would he get into the waters to be washed clean and symbolize this new life he was entering in like the rest of the people around? Why did Jesus get baptized? Well, in Matthew's account, which I love, John the baptizer, he actually, he protests Jesus coming to him. Jesus is getting in the water. His feet are in the Jordan. And John's like, whoa, 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 whoa. what's going on? Let me read it to you. Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, 
I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John allowed Jesus to be baptized. I love that, and I have so many questions around what's going on in that verse. Jesus steps into the water, and John goes, no, 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 Jesus, you can't be baptized by me. I need to be baptized by you. I know who you are, so can you baptize me? And Jesus just goes, allow it for now, like they're going to have a private talk later. Just baptize me. We'll clear up all the details later, but let's just do this now. But earlier in another gospel, John chapter 1, verse 29, we see that John knows the fullness of who Jesus is. He's got this revelation by the Spirit. So as Jesus walks into the water, John's like, I can't do this, Jesus. Look at who you are. John 1, 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in the Jewish temple sacrificial system, if you were to sacrifice a lamb for the forgiveness of sin, it had to be pure and spotless. This was a beautiful lamb. This was a lamb that didn't have anything wrong with it, any defects in any way. And this would take care of your sin or maybe a few people's sin. But here he's saying Jesus is coming to take away the sin of the world, a one-time, all-time kind of act, which means Jesus is very powerful, and it means Jesus is pure and spotless. Jesus doesn't need the forgiveness of sins. Then in verse 30, it says, this is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. And you might read that and go, oh, okay, I didn't know that. So to be baptized by someone, they need to be older than you. That's what John says. But actually, John was born before Jesus. And as Jesus is coming into the water, he's not talking about like a few days or weeks of age difference. He's saying, no, Jesus is eternal. Jesus was here before the foundations of the earth. Jesus helped to create the earth. I can't baptize him because he is God. Verse 31, I didn't know him. Get this, I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. So John is in the water preaching this message of repentance, baptizing hundreds or thousands of people because of Jesus. His ministry is not about himself. He's not trying to gather a crowd or whatever. He's preparing the way for the Lord, like Andy shared last week. This baptism is a baptism to help people respond to Jesus and see Jesus and know Jesus. So Jesus is hopping in the water to be baptized. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. this baptism, I don't get, this is about you. You should baptize me. I can't baptize you. Everything about this is to point people to you, Jesus. Verse 32, and John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John came to baptize with water for repentance, but Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And finally, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So let's play that scenario by the Jordan River one more time. Jesus' foot goes into the river, and John sees him and goes, uh, No, you can't be baptized by me. You are the Son of God. You are God himself. You're eternal. You're the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You're perfect in every way. Why would I baptize you? I need you to baptize me. So why did Jesus get baptized? <laughs> Two simple answers. There could be more, but Jesus got baptized as an example to us and to identify with us. Firstly, the example. 
In Matthew 3.15, Jesus says to John, the reason for him being baptized is to fulfill all righteousness. Now, you might hear a lot of different things when I use the word righteousness, but Jesus isn't saying, I'm doing this to be good. I'm doing this to, to you know, do the right thing. Jesus is being baptized as an act of obedience as a disciple. He, he's living a life of devotion and obedience to God. He, he's fulfilling everything of what it would mean to be one of the people of God responding to the ways of God. And he's doing this as an example to us. That we would see what it looks like to follow God, what it looks like to live a life of devotion and surrender to him. So repentance here, as Jesus goes into the water, is not about Jesus asking forgiveness for doing the wrong thing. Repentance is to reorient our values and our habits and our loves and our thinking and our behavior and everything around a new understanding of God and his kingdom. So Jesus doesn't have the wrong way of thinking. His values are not off. He is responding as an act of repentance, showing us what a wholehearted response to God looks like and inviting us into the same kind of life. So that's the example. Secondly, the identification piece might be interesting. You might go, what does it mean that Jesus identifies with me? There's an interesting verse in John 1 verse 14 in the message translation. It says that uh, God became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And I love that picture of the immortal, eternal God coming down as a man and walking our streets and living a human life, being able to identify with what it looks like to be you or me, what human beings go through and experience. So Jesus comes down and identifies with us in his humanity, God in the flesh. But in his baptism, there's something really interesting going on. So I want to read you a quote from Frederick Brunner about this, which I think this nearly brought me to tears in prep. I'm hoping I hold it together today, but this is beautiful. This is Jesus' first adult act in the gospel, being baptized. The first thing Jesus does for the human race is go down with it into the deep waters of repentance and baptism. Jesus' whole life will be like this. It is well known that Jesus ends his ministry on a cross between uh, thieves it deserves to be as well known that he begins his ministry in a river among sinners. From his baptism to his execution, Jesus stays low at our level, identifying with us at every point, becoming as completely one with us in our humanity as in the church's teaching he is believed to be completely one with God in eternity. Leon Morris in his commentary on Jesus' baptism says something very similar. He says, Jesus might well have been up there in front, standing with John and calling on sinners to repent. And I read that and I went, of course. Like, I've never thought about that before. Like, why is Jesus in the crowd? You would almost think John would pull him out and say, hey, we've been talking about this repentance thing and this Messiah who was to come. We've been getting baptized in his name and he's here today. So Jesus, come forward. He's going to preach the message. He's going to help me baptize today. But that doesn't happen at all. Jesus is in the crowd. He carries on, he says, instead he was down there with the sinners, with us, affirming his solidarity with them, making himself one with them in the process of the salvation that he would in due course accomplish. The same perfect eternal God who left heaven to die on the cross for our sins is among people, is among us, identifying with us, going through the things that we go through so that we can relate to him and he can relate to us as a perfect priest. 
So lastly, how is this passage good news to us? What does this passage have to say to us? Well, this is one of the great Trinitarian passages in the New Testament. What I mean by that is we've got the snapshot of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all together in this moment of Jesus' baptism. And it's just like in the beginning. So Genesis 1, you've got the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together in the act of creation. And it says that the Spirit was hovering over the waters, and God spoke, and things began to exist. Colossians 1 tells us that it was through Jesus that the Father created everything that exists. So in the beginning, we have this picture. And here again on the banks of the Jordan, we've got something very similar. The Spirit hovering over the waters, and then the words of the Father coming and speaking. And there's Jesus the Son being baptized. God, just like in the beginning when he began creation and he began life, is working new creation and new life right there on the banks of the Jordan River. Now, there are only two places in the New Testament where we get to hear the words that the Father speaks to the Son. And I'm so grateful for that. Like, I would love to be in some of those prayer conversations that Jesus had with the Father, but we don't get those written down. But we have these two moments where the Father speaks to the Son. The the one is here at the baptism. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. The other is a few chapters on in Mark 9, verse 7, at the transfiguration, where God says something very similar to Jesus and about Jesus. We've got James, Peter, and John there as well. And God speaks and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. One is this affirmation over Jesus. Another is almost an affirmation for the people. This is God. This is the Messiah. This is my son. Listen to him because he is king. His words have authority. His words are true. Follow him. Believe him. Respond to him. That's what's going on there. But at the baptism, this voice from heaven speaks, and the crowds hear it, which is just a wild thing to imagine. Like if you put yourself in the water there, sitting on the banks, you've just been baptized, your friend's just been baptized, and then you hear the voice of God over this crowd speaking these words. It's an incredible thing. And something we miss is that actually God speaks Scripture. God's quoting two verses from the Old Testament here when he speaks over Jesus. He's quoting Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, both messianic chapters, prophetic chapters about Jesus who was to come. Psalm 2 is about the Messiah who would be the king of the nations. And Isaiah 42 is about the suffering servant. And it's like Jesus is talking, the Father is speaking over Jesus, revealing who he is and saying, this is the Messiah you've been waiting for. This is who he is. But he's not going to come in the way that you expect him to. He's coming in a gentle way, a lowly way, a humble way. He's coming as a suffering servant, and the way he takes power might not be the way you expect. And I think that's so relevant for us. I feel like so many conversations recently I've had with people, God is not showing up in the way we want him to, or the way we expect him to, or the way we assume that he will. And that's exactly how Jesus' ministry begins. His ordination or inauguration here in this baptism, God's speaking and saying, he is the one you were looking for, but he might not show up in the way you expect him to show up. I just want to say that could be true for you as well in your life, in your situation. Jesus is the one you're looking for, but he might not show up in the way that you expect him to or the way you would hope he would, but he will show up. Frederick Brunner says of this moment where prophecy is fulfilled, Old Testament scriptures are realized and quoted. 
He says, Jesus' baptism was God's visual and oral way of saying to history, dear world, this is it. Here he is. It's a big deal. It's a huge moment. At at Jesus' baptism, the father declares his love for his son loudly and proudly. You know, this could have been a different moment, like a personal private moment between Jesus and the father. But it's not. It's a loud public one in front of a huge crowd. I um, I watched the movie Lost in Translation again uh, in December, for those of you who like it. Bill Murray, Scarlett Johansson, it's a bit older now. But this uh, these two meet in a hotel in Tokyo, both there for different reasons. And because of their loneliness, um, they end up spending a bunch of time together and strike up like a camaraderie or a friendship. And the last scene of this movie, after you've seen them singing karaoke together, eating together, conversations together, sharing about life together, The last scene is when they say goodbye and the director makes the choice that you don't hear the words that they speak to each other. You see their body language, you see their emotion, you see them hug, you see them say goodbye, but you don't get to share in the words that they speak. And that could have been the baptism scene where you don't know what the father is saying. But rather than a private intimate moment between the father and Jesus, this is a loud public declaration by the father saying, this is my son who I love with whom I'm pleased, or who I delight in. The Father is shouting this so that everyone can hear. He's shouting it from the rooftops, that this is my boy, and I'm so proud of him. And the good news for us here 2,000 years later is that the words that the Father spoke over Jesus at his baptism are the same words that he speaks to every one of Jesus' brothers and sisters, every single one of us who are in Christ. When the Father looks at you, if you are a follower of His, then He says the same words over you today, this morning, 2,000 years on, He speaks the same words over you. And I just thought, we've got a little bit more to go before we finish, but maybe you need to just sit on that for a moment. The fact that what the Father loudly, publicly, proudly said about Jesus is what He says to you. Maybe you just need to close your eyes for a moment as I just say that again. And just maybe you need to even ask, God, help me to believe that this is true. Because the Father says over you, if you are in Christ today, this is my son or this is my daughter. I love you and I'm so proud of you or I'm pleased with you or I delight in you or you are my joy. The NLT translation of this voice from heaven says, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. If you and I woke up each morning and quoted that to ourselves and took that into the day with us, that I bring God joy, that would change our lives. That is a powerful thing. I think that's something we could repeat to ourselves every morning. Look in the mirror. I bring God joy. You bring God joy. God finds joy in who you are. These things that God speaks are really important. Earthly fathers are meant to imprint these things on their children, although generally we don't. We do it imperfectly or in flawed ways, but earthly fathers are meant to impart identity, affection, and affirmation to their children. And because we haven't found that perfectly from our dads in this life, maybe we haven't gotten that at all, We need to look to our Heavenly Father and ask Him to give us those things. That actually we find identity from the Father which gives us value and belonging. 
We are His kids. And love from the Father, which gives us security and acceptance. That God loves us. And delight from the Father, which gives us the sense of affirmation and applause. God likes me. <laughs> Those are huge, huge truths to sink deep into our hearts. Let's just look at each one for a few minutes and we'll close. Without receiving identity from the Father in heaven, we will look for that identity in other places. And for many of us, um, the words or actions that we've experienced in our lives, maybe significant moments in our lives have defined us and they've marked us and they've shaped us in certain ways that today are defining you. You, you know that. Maybe they're even coming to mind as I'm speaking about this now. Like now, I was more defined by that, that word, that moment, that situation, that person than I have been by my heavenly father. But we can come to God and ask him to give us identity and belonging and value. It's a beautiful a moment where Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11. And he goes through this long list of sins. <laughs> he's a good pastor. He knows the people in his church. He knows their stories. So he's saying, hey, yeah, this community of people, I, I know what you guys have been through and what you've done. I know your stories. And they look like this. And in verse 11, he says, and some of you used to be like this, referring to that list. And then he says, but, this is past tense. That list is past tense. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And such were some of you, but. That was who you were, but. That was your old identity, but. That was what defined and shaped you, but. You have a new story inside of Jesus. The past has been washed away. You've been made new. You have a clean slate, and that's what baptism represents. That in Jesus, we are adopted into the family of God, where we become brothers and sisters with one another and Him. We have a new family. We have a new identity. We have a new source of value that comes from Him and what He's done. The second thing is His love. Without receiving love from the Father, we look to, love, to find love in other places, from other people. And probably even the best person in this room, the best person in your life could love you in a way, give you love in a certain way, which is never going to fill you up in the way that you most need. So to use like a cliche saying, we have a God-sized hole inside of our hearts that can only be filled by His love and what He can give. When I was preparing for this, I thought of a, a movie trailer I watched a while ago. I like rom-coms, which is not something you really want to admit publicly, but I do. I really enjoy them. So I watched this trailer, decided not to watch the movie. But in it, they were, I don't want to give away what this was. Uh, it doesn't look great. And I don't want any of you to go and watch it and then blame me. I didn't watch it. But there's this scene where this couple uh, meet each other. They start dating and they're talking to their friends. The guy goes to his friend. She goes to her friend. They're talking about the relationship and the friends are excited. They think this is a good match. And then they feed back to their friends that they've said, I love you. Which in a rom-com, that's the good stuff. You know, they're there. Their friends are devastated. They literally in the trailer use the word, this is a disaster. Like you shouldn't have done it. And they ask the question, who said it first? And this is the line from the movie. If you want to find out what it is, you can Google it. Whoever says, I love you first cares more. And it's like the sign of weakness. If you put it out there, it's like you're more into the relationship than the other person. You've got to play the game. You know, because if you say, I love you first, you care more, and you're making yourself vulnerable, you're at risk. The other person might not feel the same. They might not receive you. They might not reciprocate. You're putting yourself out there, and you don't know what you're going to get in return. But what we get at Jesus' baptism is this revelation 
that God cares more. He says, I love you first. He puts himself out there. He wants you to know what he wants. He wants you to know who he is. And he's not worried about getting rejected. God has been rejected by his people since the beginning of time. Again and again and again and again. He's been rejected by me and all of us in this room again and again and again and again. And you know what? God cares more. He puts himself out there. He says, I love you, knowing that we're not going to love him back perfectly, but wanting us to know that he loves us. He cares. God cares more. He loves us perfectly. He loves us unconditionally, and he loves us eternally. And lastly is his affirmation. Do you want to know what God is like? Um, the best way I thought to describe it is this. Shell and I were back home in December, and um, we stayed with my parents for a while, and we stayed in their bedroom, just made life easier for everyone. So I slept on my mom's side of the bed, and uh, on her side table, she had a photo of me from when I was a kid in a frame that I think she's had for 30 years. <laughs> I think it's the same photo that's been by her bed since I was about seven years old. And it's not a great photo of my sister and I. Um, it's not well taken. This is not like Instagram worthy or anything. Like it's faded. We're wearing terrible, it's like the 90s and we're wearing terrible clothes, which would probably be really popular now. And we, I've got like a bowl cut. It's just, I don't look great. We're not dressed well. The photo's bad. It's just bad. But that's been by her bed for 30 years. It's probably the photo of me she's looked at the most. So I saw that by her bed. I thought, yeah, it's my mom, you know. And I remember going to my dad's office before he retired back in the day. And I'd normally be pretty bored, you know, if I was there. And my dad had a few photos of me in that office, either on his desk or on the wall, I can't remember. And the one was me from school. Um, so in South Africa, we would wear school uniforms with like a blazer and a tie and a shirt. And it's like 12, 13-year-old Grant Clark. And I've got braces and I've got bad skin and I'm wearing this. And it's like, Dad, why that picture? You know, like you could have found one a few years down the line, something more impressive. In this picture, like you're just seeing my um, imperfections. My teeth, my skin don't look amazing. On top of that, like I'm just immature. Like I'm in this awkward, gawky teenage phase. Like it's not a glorious pic. He could have had something of me like winning an award or, you know, achieving something great. But my parents have these photos of my sister and I dressed terribly with bad skin and bad teeth. And that's how they choose to remember us. And how dare you all laugh at me. Um, and it's just this reality that it's not about what we do. It's about who we are. And God doesn't have a phone. God doesn't have, I, I don't know. I don't think he's got pictures up on his wall. But if he did, God would sit and he would look through photos of you all night. He'd have so many photos of you that you would not want other people to see because he cares so much about you in all those phases of your life. God is a beaming Proud Father, so proud of you, liking you so much. And Jesus is baptized before he's done any ministry, before he started doing any of the great things that we remember him for and celebrate him for here in this room and in our lives, before he accomplishes anything, before the sermons, the miracles, the healings, before the crowds, before the fame, before all of that, the Father's affirmation comes over him. And says, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. God speaks these words because of who Jesus is, not because of what he's done. And it's the same for us today. Like if you are in Christ, he speaks those words over you. You bring me great joy. You don't have to earn or perform to get God's love. You can just receive it. So do you know God like this? 
Do you believe in the God that Jesus is revealing to us through Mark 1? Have you experienced him in this way? There's a Sam Storm's paraphrase of Zephaniah 3.17, which I think is pretty famous in this church. I can see some nods. Um, I want to read that to you. He says, The Lord your God is with you all the time. He is a powerful and mighty warrior who saves you. When he thinks of you, he exults in festive pleasure and with great delight. At other times, he becomes quiet as he reflects on his deep affection for you. He celebrates who you are with joyful singing. And what that verse is saying is that God loves you loudly and God loves you quietly. God loves you loudly. God is like that father on the side of a sports field cheering for you, saying, that's my boy. He wants everyone to know, you know, whether you're playing well or not, he is very proud of you on that sports field. He's shouting, he's cheering you on. And tomorrow as you wake up, as you get out of bed, I'd love you to think that. God is cheering me on as I get out of bed and make my coffee. As I brush my teeth, as I drive to work, as I'm in this meeting, as I see this client, God is there on the sidelines of my life, cheering me on and encouraging me. He's got a Team Grant t-shirt, big foam finger. He's shouting loudly and he's passionate and excited about it because he loves you. He cares about you so deeply. Let's go, Granty. Let's go. God is excited about you and he's with you and he's cheering you on throughout the day. He's loud and passionate about your life and he's quiet about your life too, watching you as you sleep. I don't know, for some of the parents in the room, whether you've done, I think everyone has, but so your kids go to bed, you either hold them or you just sit there watching them when they're doing nothing. They're not adding value. They've annoyed you before bedtime. You're tired and worn down. But now as they sleep, you're just looking at their beautiful face and you're like, oh, they're perfect, you know, in every way. As you sleep, as you do nothing, as you don't perform, as you don't add value, as you don't anything, God looks at you with such love and affirmation and care. I want to show you guys a picture from this morning. Um, this is going to blow your mind. Shell texted this to me this morning while I was preparing for the sermon. She said, August drew a butterfly all by herself. It's amazing. I showed that to the team just before when we were praying, and they were like, butterfly? Question mark. <laughs> if she was older, I would never do this, but she's so young. We are so proud of this powerful work of art. She is clearly a genius. And we will probably put this on our fridge and show this to her for years to come. I hope you're getting the point. This is terrible. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is never going to sell for a lot of money. But for Shell and I, this is an exciting day. We have butterfly art. As you draw your butterfly art, as you live your life tomorrow, I want you to know that your father loves you loudly and quietly. And he is so proud of you. I'd love it if I could ask you just to close your eyes for a second before we go into communion. I just want to create one more sp space for us to respond to those words that came from heaven. I know some of you have already done this, but I wanted to create space to personalize these words. because I believe the Father wants us to hear them this morning and personalize them this morning. So as I speak these words, would you hear them as if they are your Father in heaven speaking over you? You are my beloved daughter. 
with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. This is my dearly loved daughter who brings me great joy. Holy Spirit, I pray that we as a church would be marked by those words of identity and of affection and of affirmation. I pray that they would go deep down into our hearts and shape us individually and as a church. I pray you would help us to believe them. And even as we wake up tomorrow, I pray that we would know you delight in us and that we bring you great joy.